Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why the 2016 presidential primary is likely to be fought for as long as the war on drugs and turn out just as well. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who is Chris Christie's greatest nemesis after the Stromboli. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pectinated. Ratings actually really do matter, so please take a few seconds to give us a few stars. If you have a few moments, write a review. And we'd like to give all of our subscribers a little bit of a homework assignment. Everybody should leave us a review. We know that there are a couple hundred of you that haven't done that yet, so please do so. Tell us what you think. We would like to know. Yeah. And we'd also like to not talk about a large number of things. Most things, actually, in the world are things that we would rather not talk about today. We've decided uh, most things are just ass. Yeah, it is just honestly, like, honestly, if you look back on this this week, but especially uh, but especially the kind of landscape of, 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 of affairs and events today, it's just ass as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Yeah. So what are we not going to – so what and are not, we – Not in uh, a good way. Not in a good way. Not, yeah, not in a positive way. Just, just, just deplorable ass. Yeah. Lamentable, I think, is what we're going for here. All right, yeah, I think what are we not talking? A word today? that we're not allowed to say anymore. I think Hillary ruined that for us. Yeah, eh, we're reclaiming deplorable. I'm going to make this podcast about that. Reclaiming the word deplorable. <laughs> this is going to be a terrific use of everyone's time. So please leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> it was great until all they did was start talking about deplorability. Yeah, why not? Yeah. All right. All right. So what are we, so what are we not talking about? So the first thing we're not talking about is uh, Don Jr., uh, Jared, and Uncle Paul's trip to a conference room with a Russian lawyer and apparently an American citizen. There, NBC News this morning was reporting that there was another person in the room who is a former Russian uh, spy, now an American citizen. Um, and my only question is, did he register with Farah for that meeting as an American <laughs> sitting if, citizen if he was representing the government of Russia? Is there anyone who wasn't at that meeting? I think it's the real question. <laughs> well, I, I think mean, I might. I, I think I was there briefly. Yeah, I may have just, blacked out just to look in and just like see how things are going, you know. But then realized it wasn't my meeting and like you know left. Is it possible the meeting took place the same day that guy tried to climb Trump Tower last summer? Because that would just be perfect. <laughs> that would have been tremendous. <laughs> it's like, I'm late. <laughs> Bursts through the window. <laughs> I have important information about Hillary. <laughs> Don't listen to them. Listen to me. Look how far I climbed. <laughs> well, if that's not qualification, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah it, you know, the thing that kind of uh, amongst the various changing stories and when the president knew and how much did he know. Uh, the fact that the White House was working so hard on this, President only learned about this two or three days ago, and it was something that he repeated, in addition to his spokespeople and his lawyers repeating. I mean, that's just code word for we are really, really screwed, so we're just going to try to say two or three days and no one's going to call us out on it. Uh, evidently, he has known potentially since June. Oh, yeah. And and this is potentially, now, they they, they do have... One huge advantage in this, well, several, but but in this particular case of what did the president know and when did he know it, is there any subject on earth in which we can affirmatively identify when Donald Trump knew anything or that he knows it at all? 
I don't think so. No, it's the nice thing about having a president who's, I, I, for whom sort of knowledge and reality seem to kind of slip like mercury, you know, into and then back out of uh, the, you know, the folds of his brain. It's very hard to figure out exactly what, if anything, he understands or knows. Yeah, I knowing like, for him is a much more amorphous concept. So I it's feel, a real advantage for him. I feel like Graham Weston. I wrote an op-ed about the president uh, about then candidate Trump in object permanence last year. Yes. Sounds vaguely yeah, familiar. That sounds about right. Yeah, uh, yeah. This this is precisely it. Object permanence is a major issue, you know. And uh, so, in this sense, like you know, the, the, to be able to recall something like the fact that your son uh, casually took it upon himself to commit some light treason uh, is the sort of thing that any father might reasonably forget, uh, right. or indeed claim to have never really known or understood. Right. So since we're not talking about this, we're not going to belabor the point too much. Uh, and no. any other podcast you listen to will certainly be belaboring it much more. But we want to leave you with just the image of Kellyanne Conway holding up pieces of paper and cro- trying to cross the word collusion out uh, while holding a loose piece of printer paper with a not bold enough marker. So it didn't really work, didn't really come out that, that well. Um, so that's one image, and the other image is this uh, comedy has descended into prop work. Is Sebastian Gorka being parody, and it turned into prop comedy like fucking Gallagher? That's like the third time we brought up Gallagher on this podcast. I think we need him as a guest. <laughs> I don't think he. I'm not sure he translates over radio. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. You'd have to describe the watermelons exploding, and I don't know <laughs> that I can speak in that evocative language. <laughs> <laughs> Words fail. Should have sent a poet. <laughs> exactly. So uh, whether there was collusion or treason uh, is unclear, uh, but there was certainly attempted collusion and treason. So we'll leave it at that and move on to the next topic we're not going to talk about. Yeah, that's that. I will. I, I do just want to say that is. A, I've said it before, but that is a sweet ass defense. I attempted to collude. Was disappointed by the by the quality of collusion on offer, and therefore it was not collusion. Isn't attempted murder still a crime? Yeah, attempted conspiracy is a crime, which I would argue is just a failure to conspire. Right. That but means you weren't know, particularly that's, that's good at conspiring. Judge and he did not find it funny. <laughs> uh, what else aren't we talking about? Oh yeah, this is this is fun. We are not. Oh my god, I really, really do not want to talk about this, but it's important that we do. Uh, well, not. I mean, we kind of have to because it was so largely ignored when the story first broke because uh, Don Jr. released his emails. <laughs> because Don Jr. just like Don Jr. I, I, forgive me, we do need to move on from this. But do you remember the, there's a Simpsons character. There's Joey Tightlips and Jimmy the Squealer. Yeah, they're both members of the mob. They're like someone ran into the police. And it was either Joey Tightlips or Jimmy the Squealer. Right. Was it you, Joey Tightlips? I ain't saying nothing. Was it you, Jimmy? Yes, it was me. I told him everything. <laughs> this, is, this is Don Jr. <laughs> yeah, there was. Uh, I, I can't remember uh, what reporter or academic or professor. I can't remember his name, but he went on this like monumental tweet storm saying, "I've been chasing the story for two years," and he just. Oh, yeah. He just tweeted it out. Just tweeted the whole thing out. Yeah. Although to be fair, like that, that it it's it appears that that gentleman may have been slightly uh, misrepresenting in what like mi- I mean, misrepresenting what he was actually doing chasing that story. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. the New York the, the New York Times like those reporters like legit did, and that's and of course that's why he released it. Right? Is that the New York Times is going to release it anyway? So he attempted to get out ahead of it, which I I, I understand that strategy in circum- certain circumstances when you're dealing with a crisis situation. This is not one of them. Yeah, I he can, actually I, he actually yeah. made it worse because, and this is going to go into something that we should probably talk about at greater length at some other point. 
uh, Trump's attempts to turn the media into fake news so that his followers, and we're not going to call them his voters or his supporters, we're going to call them his followers because it is a cult at this point, his followers won't trust anything that the media says. I mean, this is, this is their strategy, and to some extent it has worked. By Don Jr. himself release, releasing those emails as opposed to the fake New York Times doing it, he eliminated the possibility of being able to say, oh, the New York Times made those up, which some followers would have believed. Exactly. Now, what the consequences of all of that will be with respect to their support is, well, I guess we'll find out. I don't think uh, anything. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. This whole thing. Again, you know, to return to the major theme of politics right now, nothing matters. Uh, we, live in a, we live in a, everything is ass. We live in a nihilistic hellscape. Uh, speaking of which, uh, what else do we not want to talk about? Um, because when we, as we were all distracted by uh, the antics of Don Jr., uh, it turns out it transpires that uh, Steve Bannon has essentially built a B, a private sector based B team. Uh, for those of you who uh, recall, uh, when the Reagan uh, White House brought in a group of uh, inexpert experts to second guess the Pentagon's uh, Sovietologists, uh, including uh, God, who was the who was the member of the Soviet of the White House's Soviet B team who used to claim that gay people were engaging in blood terrorism by donating AIDS-infected blood to clinics? Anyway, it was those sorts of people, right? And they basically came in and and came. They were they were basically they came in to create a narrative and a set of policy recommendations for uh, for Ronald Reagan that would allow him to sell his vision of the Soviet Union rather than the uh, rather than essentially the Pentagon's own assessment and the CIA's assessment, which is that the place was, which is that the Soviet Union was already collapsing under its own weight. Anyway, Steve Bannon has B-teamed the Afghanistan, uh, has B-teamed Afghanistan. He brought in some private sector folks, uh, some you know from the uh, defense industry, uh, to come up with some alternative strategies for dealing with Afghanistan. Uh, those were, uh, and he attempted to have those presented uh, for consideration as, uh, as as Secretary Mattis reviews what the hell we're supposed to do with this now 16-year-old war. Uh, Mattis uh, apparently politely heard them out and then declined uh, to have, and then declined to take the B team's uh, offering into consideration. So all is well within the uh, unified uh, White House, as Donald Trump says, everyone is working very hard. He has very little time to watch TV. Everything is happening smoothly, and and our you know our progress toward a unified strategy on Afghanistan has never been better. Yeah, I mean it should be noted that the Pentagon, the intelligence community, they all have these sort of outside councils, um, and they have for years and years and years to act as sort of a B team, but more as sort of a red team and keep everybody honest, look at things from a little bit of a different perspective, and that's really important. In this case, uh, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon went to Eric Prince, he who founded uh, Blackwater. Uh, which everyone will remember yeah, that's with super relevant, I'm sure. Yep. And Stephen Feinberg, who is a private equity um, guy who uh, runs a firm called uh, Cerberus, where both Jon Snow, Bush's former uh, Treasury Secretary, and Dan Quayle, the former Vice President of the United States, work. Um, needless to say, uh, Feinberg's company is invested in several uh, military, uh, military industrial complex related companies. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. And Eric Prince is obviously, I mean, he's just a contractor. And believe it or not, these two gentlemen came up with a plan that involved outsourcing the, the war in Afghanistan to private contractors. Who would have thought? I know. It's pretty, pretty stunning, actually. Yeah. And the only thing you can imagine is that what would have made it better is that Trump would have built some Trump hotels for them all to stay at in Afghanistan so that like the money is just going full circle back into him. Yeah. It's the endless cycle of it. Shout out to our good friends at, uh, at task and purpose, uh, who had pretty, who had pretty solid coverage on this stuff in the course of the week, among others. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So moving on to the third thing we're not going to talk about is uh, Trump's budget, which people seem to have forgotten about that the president and Congress actually need to pass a budget at some point. So uh, Mick Mulvaney, who, I mean, he just looks like a guy who should just be stuck somewhere in middle management, you know, very happy to be driving a used BMW to his, you know, McMansion and his wife of who's cheating on him. Let's just do that. Let's say that. Let's say that. <laughs> you really, you really paint a picture there. Hell yeah. 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 So, uh, the, the white house, despite the fact that they've already double counted something like a trillion dollars, um, which he defended by saying, quote, I'm aware of the criticisms and would simply come back and say there, there's other places where we will, we're probably overly conservative in our accounting. We stand by our numbers. Um, this was basically so, they so were using the same. So frequently in bet, we're frequently horrifically wrong to the tune of a trillion dollars, but we're wrong in different ways throughout the budget. So it all comes out in the wash, right? So to you know, that's awesome. Back in May, when they first released this, economists and other you know people who can count noted that the proposed offsetting tax cuts and balancing the budget with the same pool of about two trillion dollars in savings from slashing basically the social safety net for the country, uh, which is obviously mathematically impossible to have it come from two different pools. So not only did that budget math add up to a $16 billion surplus that they suggested, uh, and that math was apparently wrong. According to the CBO, there will actually be a $720 billion deficit from this budget plan. So again, from a $16 billion surplus based on fake numbers to a $720 billion deficit based on real numbers. And all of this is based on the idea of 3% growth, which Janet Yellen, the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve, and uh, in response to a question from a, uh, a House member, yes, uh, from a senator yes, uh, yesterday or the day before, basically responded saying, yeah, we all want unicorns and ponies. It's just not going to happen. So 3% growth is sort of ridiculous, which makes Jeb apostrophe, apostrophe, exclamation, exclamation point, point, I ruined Jeb. That. Yeah. Well, Jeb apostrophe S exclamation point, Jeb's budget plan. See, I fixed it. There we go. <laughs> I fixed it. Um, his plan, his plans were all based on a 4% growth, which was frankly ludicrous. And then for all of you Bernie fans out there, his 5% growth was so ridiculous and insane that it was, you know, for your baseball fans out there, he just went straight to plaid. Yes, we all love a uh, a nice. But I mean, look, and budgeting is based on you know, government budgeting is based on a, a fair amount of projection. Yeah, some of which is scientific, and some of which is yeah, maybe a little bit speculative from time to time. But uh, losing track of uh, seven hundred and twenty or a, a swing of seven hundred and twenty billion dollars is an awful lot, uh, especially when you're basing it, especially when the premise of the whole thing is an unrealistic scale of growth. So their math was, so the premises are false and their math was bad. Right. Uh, Two out of 10 would not pass this budget. Right. And a lot of this goes back to sort of just the Republican dogma since the Ford years of this thing called the Laffer curve. There's this potentially apocryphal story that this economist met with Dick Cheney and potentially Donald Rumsfeld. There are questions about whether or not he was there. This is while Rumsfeld was chief of staff to President Ford and Dick Cheney was the deputy chief of staff. And we'll remind you that David Brooks wants the country to go back to those kinds of days of commonality. Specifically Mrs. Gerald Ford. That's what we need now. A latter-day Gerald Ford. Yeah. 
Or maybe he I mean, said maybe. no one except David Brooks. Right. Well, Not even Gerald Ford, God bless him. <laughs> Exactly. So this Laffer curve was driven was drawn up by a, on a sharpie with a napkin that now sits in some museum. Supposed that you know that essentially the idea is is that if you cut taxes enough, giving enough money back to the rich, the economy will go boom because uh, people will start spending enough money. I'm dumbing this down tremendously, but that's the essential idea. That there is a line somewhere in the middle between you know where you're taxing uh, enough to keep the government running but you're stalling growth. And then above the line, the government will continue to run because it'll be flush with cash because you've cut taxes and business growth will be so much, you'll be creating more tax revenue because there'll be more things to to tax versus taxing some things more. So it's like a quality versus quantity kind of argument. And thus far, any time that it has been even mildly uh, put into place, it has resulted in monumental deficits and just you know, widespread economic catastrophe. Yeah, so the Republic, we should the definitely do that again. The, the Republican legislature of Kansas uh, oh, just overrode the governor, yeah. just overrode the governor's veto uh, on their budget. Uh, and and I mean, the Republican legislature of Kansas, not famed even for its moderation among in Republican circles, uh, overrode the governor's veto on their budget, uh, which is a much more sort of traditional moderate state budget, included raising taxes because they have had they've had years and years of uh, taxation of government of budgets based on this assumption uh, that have left Kansas in uh, its worst financial shape in generations. I mean, the place is is financially just absolutely in the crapper uh, as compared to some of its neighbors, which have their own struggles. We talked about Illinois recently, but for the most part, have seen. You know, less growth than they would like, or in some cases, steady or even admirable growth. What they have not seen is uh, tax revenues and growth. Just, I mean, you know, both of them on a straight downward curve, right. or on, on a on a downward curve, which is what Kansas has endured under the under this particular system. Right. And again, Frank and I are not being economists. We can't really dive into the rationale behind all of this. We will just point out that any time that it has been even mildly put into place, it has failed. And, you know, it would be great to get somebody who's a true believer to come on and talk about it. Um, but I'm not sure how many true believers still exist out there other than Mick Mulvaney, apparently. Yeah. So, Nick Mulvaney, come on, uh, come on the show and we'll talk. We would love to talk to you about the Laffer Curve. Yeah. Yeah. And you can complain to us that, you know, your wife is actually in, entirely loyal to you. Yes. Sure. That all sounds great. Uh, so those that are the jokes just beneath us. I'm going to... I. I I'm going to take that whole that whole thing back. Dick <laughs> okay. Mulvaney's wife, I'm sure, is a lovely woman, and he has a wonderful family. And he doesn't yes. look like he should be in middle management. Sure. Taking the whole thing he, back. He does. He does look like he should be in middle management. That part of it was fair. <laughs> that part of it was harsh, but fair. Uh, All right. So okay. those are the three things we're not talking about. Those are the three things that we're not talking about. The one thing we really wish we hadn't. Okay. So. All right. What else? What else is happening here? Um, Mitch McConnell has called off, has, uh, called off the recess. Um, it's, I'm sure, a prelude to his calling off Christmas, which is something he's wanted to do for years. Um, McConnell's called off the August, re- the July uh, recess for the Senate. They don't get to go back to their, don't get two weeks off to go back to their uh, their, their home states. Instead, they get to hang out um, in D.C. and attempt to pass uh, the uh, the new Senate health care bill. I just have this to say on the question of calling off the recess. There, I mean, there. The interpretation that's widely out there, and this is correct, is they can't go back to their constituencies without having done something, and so far they have done basically not a damn thing. 
this is on this is their own fault. Uh, they have both chambers and uh, the presidency, and yet here we are. Uh, this is I will say this when you are spending time at work because you when you when you want when you have to or want to spend more time at work because you are afraid to go home it tells you something about your domestic life <laughs> that is that is true of marriage that is true of representing a state so you know, good luck to them all I say yeah uh, that's a hundred that's all a hundred percent true and you know now, now this bill got rolled out yesterday um, and it may or may not include this Cruz and Lee amendment and then there's this whole separate thing that Graham apparently wrote up like in the over you know in a bull session in his in his office and it's on post-it notes or something i think they just you know brought a stack of post-it notes and scraps of papers to the uh, parliamentarian i'm like hey what do you think yeah it was it's just that's exactly right it's which is the best way to introduce any kind of legislation honestly or if you can write it on vellum um but (laughs) yeah so we've got so and this and this whole thing comes down right this is the problem the new Senate bill has – it is a different piece of work, um, but it is – it carries essentially the same problems. And it's – this is best exemplified by the first senator – the first Republican senators to come out against it, Susan Collins and Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. These people came out against it for very different reasons. Susan Collins came out uh, against it because it is it – is, Politically and uh, intolerable uh, because it's too it's too conservative, a little too draconian, uh, and Rand Paul because it doesn't go far enough right. because that's that's how Rand Paul rolls. Well, uh, and this is a Susan Collins credit. I, I think that she's also kind of looking at it from that it is a morally reprehensible piece of legislation. Sure, exactly that it is that it is yeah. But she may she may she may genuinely feel that way about it. She certainly is aware of the political consequences of it. Um, one way or the other, it is too it is too reprehensible, too harsh for her, not harsh enough for Rand Paul, and this has been the problem with healthcare within the Republican caucus in both chambers since the beginning of this thing. Right, this is mm-hmm. why they can't come up with an alternative to Obamacare because a a substantial portion of their caucus, you know, really wants the American healthcare system to be you know to be dismantled and replaced with poorhouses and workhouses. Uh, and you know, and then uh, you know that's one section of them, and then the other section of them is concerned that they may not that it may a be reprehensible, uh, and b have dire political consequences. And this is this bill attempts to address both, but it can't get around that central strategic problem. Right. So I mean, what we'll see over the next two weeks is first McConnell has to get the thing onto the floor, which is not clear that he's got the votes to even get it to the floor to for a vote where people can start bringing new amendments, and then they can just start paying people off essentially to get them to vote for it. So the question is if he can actually get it to the floor. Um, and then the next question is, is what happens on the floor? I think once it gets on the floor, there's going to be so much deal cutting that this thing actually has the potential to pass. However, that being said, um, getting it to the floor, I think, is a real problem because right now you've got two against it. So he needs one, you know, one more senator comes out and it's all over. And nobody wants to be the one senator who the entire caucus can look at and say, hey, that guy, that guy or woman, could be Murkowski, it could be uh, Heller from, from Nevada, it could be several other people, but those are probably the two leaders right now um, in terms of who may go down next. Uh, no one wants to be the one that kills it. So you're, I don't think you're going to see one person. You're going to see three or four come out. Because if you yeah, do it in a group, it's no individual person's fault. And right now, it's neither Collins nor Rand Paul's fault because they've both been opposed to it all along. 
That's right. And no, that, that's, a, that's a very sharp point. If this thing doesn't make it, it'll be because there are, you know, two at least, two more will break at least, if not three or as you say, or four. Yeah. So, and I think that's a reasonable way to bet, frankly. Yeah, and this will be, I mean, this will be the make or break for Mitch McConnell's genius, if he can actually pull this off or not. And I'd posit to say that if they don't pull this off, I would hope that there would be agitation within the caucus to get rid of him as leader. I don't think it'll happen, but you'd hope that just a, this, this large of a monumental fail, and you know Trump has no love for him. So no, clearly not, not. He doesn't have the backing, you know, the support of the White House. The same way, if you remember um, how quick Bush was to throw um, Trent Mott out. Yes, no, that's right. And, and I think that there is, I mean, you know, we're, I mean, this, we're sort of entering into the realm of speculative fiction here. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that I think it's unlikely that they would get rid of him, uh, even if this thing goes down. If he did, it would not be fundamentally dissimilar to the end of Boehner. Uh, you know, the, the an inability to bridge the gap between the Freedom Caucus equivalent and uh, and the you know so so-called more mainstream Republican Party uh, just you know has undone the leadership, and it's been it gets that gets harder and harder when uh, there are enough Democrats to make to make, to mean that you have to have all of both sides of the Republican Party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's move on to speaking of Boehner. Let's move on to the guy that Boehner's replacement wishes he was. Ah, yes, exactly. So you know, occasionally. We highlight interesting pieces of writing that we commend to the attention of uh, you, the core of Discovery, our listeners. And uh, I would like just to direct everyone's attention. I never thought I would hear myself say these words. Yeah, I would like to, to hear them. I know. I just are you all ready? Get your, get yourself ready. I am not going to recommend David Brooks. Everyone, relax. Yeah, that'd and be we a step are not recommend. <laughs> we are not recommending David Brooks, uh, except that we should all go and have lunch with him because clearly he's he's having a, kind of a difficult time. Maybe he'll uh, be a better. Maybe like he'll have better ideas if he you know has more friends and can talk to more people. That seems reasonable. Yeah. Let's give it a shot, shall we? Yeah. No, what I'm about Everybody to say. Everybody find David Brooks and buy him a coffee. That's a, that's a good. And don't bail on him. He hates that, and it means that America is a declining power somehow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and no, don't take him to some you know highfalutin coffee place where you know. He may be, be uncomfortable with whether or not you know what a venti is. Yeah, don't take him to a place where he might worry that you don't know what the what the menu means. <laughs> oh boy! All right, okay. excellent. Good. So we're not talking about David Brooks. So we're not talking about David Brooks. <laughs> Good. We did a tremendous job of not talking about David Brooks. No, I'm going to say something else truly shocking. Uh, I recommend a piece in Slate. <laughs> I do recommend a piece in Slate. Everyone, <laughs> contain yourself. <laughs> Ellie Jacobs. Someone get Ellie the smelling salts. Uh, there's, there's quite a good piece, actually, I think, by uh, Ben Mathis Lilly in Slate that was on Ben Sass, a uh, Republican senator from Nebraska, uh, darling of the interwebs, uh, you know, the kind of Republican that, um, that Democrats seem to be drawn to want to love for some goddamn reason. He's a, he's a thoughtful guy. He's an extremely well-educated man. Wrote a, uh, an interesting book on raising... Uh, hardworking and civic-minded children that actually apparently is a lot better than the description that I just gave would lead you to believe it might be. Um, has interesting thoughts. The piece is actually nicer to him than I would have been, uh, but that, that I think makes its criticism all the more valid. It, it essentially is a description of how Ben Sass is a, you know, comes across you know, in, in public and in his writing as someone who really has new and, and valuable thoughts on what it is to be a citizen of a Republican, 
how to be more engaged and how to essentially restore some degree of functionality to government by forging a genuine and unified consensus on what kind of country we want. Uh, the only shame of this is that he is doing none of these, actually doing none of the things that he would need to in order uh, to uh, make what he has written absolutely make himself credible. Uh, as a as the the originator of this line of thought, so he is you know he has uh, talked a lot about for to give you just a good example from this. Uh, Sass has talked a, a great game about understanding the economic pressures of people who are uh, you know the way the economy has changed, people who've lost their jobs to automation, how difficult it is to find uh, high wage uh, you know or even living wage work in a lot of America now. Uh, also has a lower uh, legislative ra- ranking from the AFL-CIO, uh, one of the America's largest union, uh, has a lower ranking from, legislative ranking from them than Ted Cruz. He has literally, Ben Sass literally has the lowest possible legislative ranking from the AFL-CIO. It is a, AFL-CIO, it is a ranking of zero. Uh, if you want to be able to make a persuasive case for yourself as a new thinker in just about anything, it is not enough to talk. You have to be able to do uh, if you're going to be a legislator and really stand for this stuff. SAS is doing none of that. So I bring this up partly because I think it's a good takedown of someone that has gotten more credit from the left than he deserves. And it occasions our one of our, uh, our reminders, our, our usual informed reminders, please do not fawn over Lindsey Graham and John McCain uh, when they uh, say how deeply concerned they are about whatever Trump is doing. When they do something – like hold up a committee, like hold up a committee hearing uh, in, until uh, there's a, a legit investigation into Trump and Russia. Uh, when when they actually take an when they actually take an action against any part of his agenda, uh, then and only then may they come in for even a modicum of praise. Until then, they're just bloviating. Yeah, uh, I, you know, there's not a whole lot more to add to that. Um, you know, we'll just say that uh, we will we will need to do a, a retread of alt centrism at, at some point soon, but. Uh, Ben Sass is, is is currently the chairperson of that that group to some extent. Yes, yes. Or if not, he's either the chairperson or the mascot, or possibly both. Yeah, he may be supplanting Mike Bloomberg as the or Joe Scarborough as the uh, as the uh, titular head. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to keep this short for the week. Uh, after last week's sort of uh, rolling thunder lengthy episode of me and Frank and then the episode earlier this week with uh, Xander that everybody should really check out it's uh, really um, informative in terms of the Supreme Court and what what happened this this past term what's going to happen this coming term so definitely check that out uh, in the meantime please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in pentaveret um, we know that we don't have all of our subscribers as followers on Twitter so please Follow us on Twitter, and please leave us a review as well. With that, Frank, where are we headed? We take ship this week for France, where the Tour de France is underway. Uh, race operators made a few changes uh, to the, the, the famed uh, bicycle race this year, uh, and they wanted to make for a more dynamic field with these changes, and they have uh, succeeded, partly because there have been uh, a larger number of multi-party crashes uh, than in years past, which have a way of scrambling the field a bit. Uh, And the result is that with a week left in the race, uh, it's still essentially anyone's to win. And we see an opportunity, especially while President Trump is there, uh, hitting on the First Lady of France. So America's image has taken a bit of a beating uh, around the world, especially in Europe recently, uh, almost entirely due to uh, President Trump. We are going to rehabilitate America's image because we are nothing if not patriots by somehow arranging for Donald Trump to unwittingly win the Tour de France. All we have to do is trick him onto a bicycle and somehow get him up the hills. And I mean, really, how hard can that be? 
and then we can just push him down the other side and let gravity take care of the rest. Now, I know what you're thinking. Normally, that would be a recipe for getting someone killed. But if recent events have taught us anything, it's that Donald Trump will be fine because nothing bad ever seems to happen to this dude, no matter what the hell he does. I think our plan is foolproof. I don't see how it could go wrong. Glory and the yellow jersey await. Friends, fair stands the wind for France. Take care, everybody, and we'll just leave you with the image of the President of the United States wearing spandex.